0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll ask the question, why are people in Denmark so much happier than Americans? Is it just because they don't have Trump? Joshua Holland has some answers. Also, Republicans are still trying to repeal and replace Obamacare after seven years. We'll have an update on the situation in the Senate and a look at the big picture of what's likely to happen over the next year or two from George Zornick. But first, the pardon power of the president and the independence of the Justice Department. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. It's the only thing anyone remembers about Gerald Ford. Could Donald Trump pardon himself and... What happens then? Did the Founding Fathers consider the scenario we now may be facing? For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. And most important, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Well, let's start with our current, at least at this hour, Tuesday afternoon, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Trump has made it pretty clear he would like to get rid of him. And if he gets a different attorney general who would end the investigation by the special counsel, he wouldn't have to decide whether to pardon himself. I guess my first question is, is the Justice Department supposed to be independent of the president? Didn't didn't JFK appoint his own brother as his attorney general? What, what are the rules here? Well, the, so the Justice Department
2: is part of the executive branch. And if you take a strong unitary executive view that the uh, executive branch should be controlled by the president. The Justice Department is just, a, you know, another agency uh, like the uh, Department of Agriculture, and, and and so in in that sense takes its cues from the president. Uh, however, uh, we have had a long tradition of recognizing the importance of a degree of independence. Uh, In law enforcement in particular, and the Justice Department is responsible for law enforcement, and therefore, we have a tradition of independence with respect to U.S. attorneys, a a tradition of independence with respect to the FBI, and uh, and with the uh, Solicitor General's Office so it's a it's a it's a mixed bag. It's part of the executive branch, um but it has long rested on a kind of norm of a certain degree of independence, which is what gives its, its gives it its legitimacy and and donald trump is uh, as with virtually all other norms uh, of constitutional governance donald trump is is threatening that
0: what Trump has been tweeting about is the thing he says he's most unhappy with Attorney General Jeff Sessions about is not so much that he has not fired the special prosecutor yet. Of course, that's what we think he's unhappy about. It's that he has not investigated Hillary Clinton. The idea of the president ordering the attorney general to begin a criminal investigation of his election opponent, is that something the Founding Fathers uh, imagined? Is that anywhere in the Constitution?
2: well it's, it's certainly not and and I, you know i think the the reality of course is that there was an investigation uh of of hillary clinton and it was uh it was determined that there was nothing no, no basis for proceeding so uh i think that's you know that's should be over and done with but you know what we've heard from uh inside uh white house sources is that the of course the real concern from Trump's perspective, is that Sessions took this job and then recused himself from the Russia inquiry, which means that he's not in a position to exercise any loyalty to Donald Trump by trying to uh, interfere with uh, the Russia investigation, which Donald Trump, uh, you know, is is deeply troubled by.
0: Now it seems to me that firing or forcing the resignation of the Attorney General to prevent or stop an investigation of possible crimes by the president seems to me that's an obstruction of justice. Am I wrong about that?
2: Well, so it, it depends on what its motive is. Uh, you know, the, the, the president certainly has the right to ask for the resignation of or to terminate any of his uh, cabinet secretaries, including uh, his attorney general. Um, so uh, he has that right. If he's doing that uh, in order to uh, interfere with an, a, a criminal investigation of the president, then it raises serious rule of law uh, questions because no one, including the president, uh, should be above the law. But you know, keep in mind that firing uh, uh, Sessions doesn't actually solve the problem for Donald Trump because Sessions doesn't have the power to... Stop the uh, the the special counsel investigation, and whoever Trump appointed as Sessions' successor, uh, there would be tremendous pressure on him in the hearings to commit to not interfering with the special counsel investigation, because of course this would be the concern. So I, I think I don't think firing Sessions really does him any good.
0: Of course, Trump can avoid confirmation hearings, at least for a while, by waiting for the Senate to go on its August summer recess and then making this recess appointment thing that we heard so much about in the Obama, last Obama years. A recess appointment of a new attorney general would avoid Senate confirmation hearings for, for a while. I think it's a six-month appointment. Do I, Have I got that Right.
2: It is a temporary appointment. I, I don't remember precisely how long uh, it's for, but yes, it's a it's a way to essentially fill uh, a seat while the while the Senate is is out. But it's only for a temporary uh, period. You know, I I guess he could do that. It would be an act of uh, tremendous desperation. Look, all of the things that are on the table here: firing sessions, putting someone in, in through a recess appointment to take his place speaking to uh, fire Mueller, the special counsel. Uh, They're all things that there are formal legal mechanisms by which they can be achieved. But they all would be tremendous acts of desperation uh, by the president. They would send a signal to the world that notwithstanding the tremendous cost that any of those steps would inflict on the president. He determined that those costs were worth it. And the only reason he would determine that those costs are worth it was because what the special counsel might. Otherwise, reveal in the ordinary course would be so damaging yes. uh, that the president is willing to undertake these costs. And if that's the case, there's there would be tremendous pressure on alternative ways to get those facts out. A bipartisan commission would almost certainly be be required, and there would be uh, there would be calls for all of Mueller's work to be to be disclosed publicly in a report and the like. Uh, you know, so I, I I think these are all. Uh, the, the very fact that they're under consideration only underscores uh, that Donald Trump feels like a cornered man, uh, that, he's, that he's that desperate, that he is even thinking about things that are I, I think you, you don't even begin to go down those roads unless you are really seeing your demise if you don't take action.
0: And the writers of the Constitution, of course, were well aware of the possibility that the president might uh, commit crimes, but they also gave the president the power to grant pardons for federal crimes. The president can pardon pretty much anybody. We know this, the recent experience is Bill Clinton, who two hours before leaving office, Bill Clinton pardoned 176 people, including... Figures from the Whitewater scandal, and a fugitive whose ex-wife had raised three hundred twenty thousand dollars for the uh, Clinton's campaigns. He also pardoned his own brother. Is there anyone the president can't pardon?
2: Well, there, there's a, a lively debate uh, about whether the president can pardon himself.
0: Strangely, that's exactly who I had in mind. <laughs>
2: That's the only, you know, he, he is the only person as to whom there is a question. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, he, he, he can pardon uh, anybody else of a federal crime, and he can, uh, he can pardon them even if they haven't yet been indicted. Uh, as long as he's pardoning them for acts that they've committed in the past, he can, he can sort of prospectively pardon them, uh, thereby barring an indictment under federal law. So you can do that, but, there's, but no president has ever sought to pardon himself. Uh, and there's a, you know, there's a decent argument that the common law with respect to pardon, I mean, the Constitution doesn't say anything one way or the other, but the common law understanding of the pardon power is the, the, the authority to exercise mercy vis-a-vis others, not to be the judge of your own cause. Uh, and therefore, there's a decent argument that the pardon power does not, in fact, include uh, the president. Again, for the president to take that action, unprecedented action to pardon himself, he would have to be in such dire straits, in such hot water, uh, that I think other mechanisms would bring him down uh, and and I think that would only precipitate those other mechanisms being taken so so again I, I don't think it's uh, likely uh, we're likely to see to see that unless he is truly in a desperate position I think if you're in that desperate position you're more likely to resign than to try to pardon yourself and hold on
0: so possible scenarios here one Trump gets a new attorney general the attorney general ends the investigation conducted by the special counsel of Russia's complicity with the Trump campaign in electing him president. Another possibility, Trump pardons everybody under investigation by the special counsel, which makes the investigations moot. In both of these cases, the Constitution provides a mechanism for objecting to this, and that's the House can bring articles of impeachment accusing the president, charging the president with the crime of obstruction of justice. Right now, the House is controlled by Republicans. We can hope that enough Republicans would join Democrats at that point to bring articles of impeachment. If they were to succeed, it would go for a trial in the Senate where a two-thirds vote is required to convict. That seems unlikely. The Constitution does leave one other recourse, I believe, and that's to the voters. We can vote in a new Congress.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) At the midterms, we can, yes, we can vote in a new Congress. Uh, at the midterms. And, you know, again, I I think if if we've gotten to a point where the president is so desperate that he is taking these sorts of measures, you know, then it's a real test of character of of the Congress of the United States and the men and women who serve there. And if they fail that test uh, and do not take, you know, the the right action against the president who is engaged in blatant self-dealing to to try to interfere with a uh, criminal investigation into his own affairs, then I think I I would expect the American people to hold those uh, members accountable, and and we would have an election, and the, the next Congress would be in a much better position to hold the president accountable.
0: David Cole... Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Correspondent of The Nation magazine. David, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure.
0: Repeal and replace Obamacare. The Republicans are still trying after seven years We're getting close to the end, but we're not there yet. For the latest from Washington, we turn to George Zornick. He's Washington editor of The Nation. We reached him today in our nation's capital. George, welcome back.
1: Hi, thanks for having me back.
0: Well, we are speaking on Tuesday afternoon, and the Senate has just voted on their repeal and replace Obamacare latest effort. Tell us what's happened.
1: Uh, The Senate finally passed a motion to proceed, which basically kicks off the... The process for, for passing some sort of bill that will repeal or replace Obamacare. And I say some sort of bill, not because I haven't closely studied what they're going to pass. It's because they have not actually said what they are proceeding to. Um, they've opened a debate. Technically, they opened a debate on the bill that the House of Representatives passed uh, earlier this year. That will almost certainly fail when it comes up for a vote. They are then going to vote for uh, the BCRA, which is the Senate version, which is also going to fail. They're going to vote then, I, we think, on a, just a clean total repeal of Obamacare with no replacement. That will fail based on the statements of, of many Republican senators that they oppose that. And then, you know, you get to the real mystery meat, which is that, that McConnell is going to have a vote on um, what's now the term of the day is a skinny repeal, which basically is just a repeal of some provisions of the Affordable Care Act that are not particularly pop- popular, the medical device tax and individual mandate. The point is not to have that be the final bill, but it's to pass something, basically just a piece of paper out of the Senate. So that then there can be a House Senate conference that will work on whatever the final bill is. So I know that sounds confusing, but the whole point is that it's supposed to be confusing. Republicans do not want the public to fully understand who voted yes on what, who supports what. Mass confusion helps them in this effort to ultimately repeal Obamacare.
0: It's supposed to be confusing. So let's pull the camera back here and look at the big picture in order for a repeal bill to become law, the House and the Senate have to agree on it. Right now, what are the chances that that is going to happen in our lifetime?
1: You know, it doesn't—it doesn't seem too likely. Again, we have to see what bill they come out with. But you know, what the House passed was a complete non-starter in the Senate; just was not going to go anywhere. And you have in the House that the hard-right Freedom Caucus, which is going to make their support dependent on very Serious Medicaid cuts and go. Generally speaking, much further than than even Senate Republicans are willing to go. I'm not even sure that Mitch McConnell has 50 votes for a health care bill. I mean, he was able to strong arm people into just opening debate and saying, "Okay, well, I'm willing to talk about this," but. At the end of the day, does he have 50 votes? Can he get Rand Paul and Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and also Shelley Moore Capito and Lisa Murkowski and and Susan Collins all on the same page for a bill? I would tend to think not. But when you're you're dealing with Mitch McConnell, I think it's best not to underestimate him. A week ago today, literally just one week ago today, Tuesday, it looked like the whole process was dead. And here we are, we've just seen a motion to proceed and probably pass in the Senate. So I, I hesitate to make predictions. But but that said, I, what this has shown us is that there still is an elusive majority among Republicans for any kind of health care bill.
0: Seems much more likely that Obamacare will survive and that the strategy of President Trump will be to sabotage it. I'd like to talk about what Trump can do to try to undermine and weaken Obamacare,
1: where where will they start? Well, that's actually a very interesting potential outcome of what's happening in Congress right now. Part of this quote-unquote skinny repeal that I mentioned would be, uh, we think, although McConnell hasn't said anything yet, but we think will be a repeal of the individual mandate, which probably would get through the Senate and make it through the house, if that's kind of what spit out the other end of this, what, it will, what will happen is basically an immediate death spiral in the individual markets. Because the classic problem with insurance is if you keep the prohibition on, on insurance companies discriminating based on pre-existing conditions, which probably would still be in place even if they repealed the individual mandate, then what happens is these insurance companies cannot force anyone to buy insurance. So people will just not buy insurance. And when they get sick, they'll show up at the counter and say, hey, you can't deny me for this pre-existing condition I have. That would cause an immediate and and serious downward spiral in all of the health insurance exchanges nationwide. And it would create a real health care crisis. So that could be one route that they take to kind of tank Obamacare to the point where you can really start forcing people to the table to to change the law in a a pretty dramatic way.
0: Of course, just from a strictly realpolitik point of view, the Democrats would benefit tremendously if the Republicans throw 20 million or 25 million people uh, off of health insurance. And there's probably no better strategy for the Democrats to regain control of the House in November 2018 than for the Republicans to succeed in repealing Obamacare. That's a kind of a heartless way of looking at, but I think it's political realism, isn't it?
1: Uh, well, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are certainly betting that it's not. I mean, they they are very well aware. I'm sure that this this bill has something like 17% popularity, um, and would indeed, no matter what, they can lie about it now. But people are going to know when they don't have health insurance anymore. Um, I think their strategy is number one, confusion, and and running out the, the delaying the bad effects of this until they can kind of try to take their fingerprints off it. And frankly, just relying on a hyper, hyper compliant right wing media, Fox News and and the talk radio and Breitbart to lie about what's in the bill and who's responsible for the bad effects. They are going to rely on gerrymandered house districts and uh, extremely wealthy conservative mega donors who are going to dump just millions and hundreds of millions of dollars into the 2018 races. So they're making a very cynical bet that this is not actually going to hurt them as nearly as much as as people think as we think. And, you know, I can't sit here and say confidently that they are wrong. It's obviously questionable and shaky. And I, and I hope that is wrong if it if it does happen. But, you know, there may be some method to the madness here.
0: An even bigger picture question on the horizon, if the repeal effort does truly die... If they don't succeed in repealing Obamacare, there's a ongoing struggle to expand Medicaid in the 19 states that have not done so. That would be a tremendous benefit to millions of people. What are the chances of something like that happening?
1: You know I think pretty good. It, one one kind of weird outcome of this entire debate is that it has made the Affordable Care Act much more popular than it was, and it's yeah. promoted it in a way that President Obama was not totally willing to do. I mean, his administration, and this is, something that he admits as a as a failing did not do a good enough job explaining to people exactly what the affordable care act did and how it helped them there's been so much focus in the past few months on the medicaid expansion the medicaid program what it does for people that you've seen even even trump supporters you know realizing that that they like this and they need it and so if that momentum can be sustained going forward yeah i think you will see the rubber hit the road in some of these states that have not um, expanded Medicaid. What will also happen, I think, is that if indeed uh, you are correct and this whole process is political poison for Republicans, that will start playing out at the state level too. And that will most certainly lead to more states expanding Medicaid. I'm, I'm thinking right next door here in Virginia where there's a Democratic governor who's ready to sign an expansion and and a democratic governor will almost very likely be elected this fall. The problem has been the Republican legislature in the house. So is that going to be an issue in the state house election in Virginia later this year where Democrats can basically run on, Hey, elect us and we will expand Medicaid. You know, I I think that's a very reasonable potential outcome here.
0: The other uh, outcome of this extended debate is the growing push from the left for some kind of universal coverage through single-payer or Medicare for all system. Uh, It's not going to happen this month, but I noticed that Al Gore, hardly a fringe figure, endorsed single-payer on Tuesday. That seems to be significant.
1: Yeah, there really is rapid momentum um, forming around that. It's something that you're absolutely right. We can't even really expect to be a reality until probably into the next decade. I mean, you you have to have a presidential election, obviously, in 2020. You need to have a Democrat elected who supports that. But I I think it's rapidly becoming uh, almost sort of a litmus test in the, in the, the nascent shadow Democratic primary where, people are kind of elbowing each other out for the most buzz and and sort of support from grassroots progressives. And that's really, you know, sometimes people say, oh, 2020, what are you talking about? You know, it's 2017. Let's not worry about that. But right now is actually when the most interesting movement happens. In 2019 or even 2018 after the midterms, when candidates start to declare their candidacies and hire staffs and put out position papers, that's what they're going to be locked into for the rest of the campaign because they can't seem to be too malleable or flip floppy right now is where people are kind of feeling out the terrain and deciding where they're going to stand. And you you're absolutely right. You've seen that, not, not just from Al Gore, but among a lot of potential 2020 democratic candidates, either embracing single payer outright, or at least not saying off the bat, no, you know, that was kind of what for the past few years, Democrats have said, Obamacare is working fine or they would they would kind of brush away questions about single payer and even some that you wouldn't expect, like Chuck Schumer, are saying, well, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I'm not going to fully commit to it, but I'm, I'm not against it either. So it'll be interesting to watch that develop.
0: Last question about the politics of uh, health care. Uh, Paul Krugman tweeted yesterday that the attempt by Republicans to use secrets and lies to take away health care for millions has nothing to do with Trump. I wonder if you agree with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're looking right now at one of the most uh, sort of radical and norm-breaking politicians in American recent American history. And, and by that, I mean Mitch McConnell. I mean, what he has done over the past year and a half, I mean, starting with his completely unprecedented blockade of any vote to fill Scalia's Supreme Court seat, right through this process where he has just gone, he has got the Senate to vote to proceed to a bill that they don't even know what it is yet, a bill that will guaranteed not have gone through a single hearing, a single amendment process, will not have been scored by the CBO in most cases. That is just radically, radically unprecedented. And he is is throwing aside decades and, and centuries old norms that we've had in this country for how the government is supposed to operate so i think that's an important thing for people to keep an eye on you know it's not just trump i mean that the republican party as we've seen over the past many years several years has been captured by radicals and they're not just ideological radicals but they are procedural radicals as well
0: george zornick read him at thenation.com george thanks for talking with us today
1: thanks for having me
0: Mostly on this show, we don't talk a lot about happiness. Most of the news in the age of Trump is pretty unhappy. But now we want to change our tune and consider this. People in Denmark are a lot happier than people in the United States. Is that just because they do not have Donald Trump as their president? For comment, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine and a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. And he wrote the text, for a wonderful new animated video at TheNation.com. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there are a lot of ways you could compare and contrast life for Danes with life for Americans. How did you decide to do it for this animated video?
3: Well, I wanted to look at the lives of two imaginary human beings, babies basically born in Denmark and the United States, kind of compare and contrast the different systems in which they grow up and fight for what we all fight for, a happy, stable life, uh, a certain amount of economic security. So it was a way of uh, comparing and contrasting European, Scandinavian style social democracy with kind of the more vicious style of, of capitalism that we have here at home. I'm sure that the Danes are a little bit happier that they don't have Donald Trump. <laughs> well, let me just highlight some of the
0: things that you feature in this wonderful animation at nation.com. First of all, there's something called a child benefit in Denmark, unknown in
3: America. What is the child benefit? Well, it costs a lot to raise children. And in Denmark, everybody gets a certain stipend. It's the same amount for rich people and poor people. And um, it's one of many different social welfare programs that smooths out the hazards of of um living in a capitalist society how much is the child benefit in Denmark it's 225 dollars a month and then um in until they reach I think age eight and then it decreases a little bit so uh, it's you know it's a little bit of cash to help with babysitters and stuff like that one of the things that I I hope that comes through uh in this in this little animation is that These are not alien systems. These are not totally different concepts. Um, A lot of people would like to say, well, we live in a capitalist country. They live in socialist countries. Well, in both countries, capitalism is the main engine for economic productivity. And in both countries, a certain sector, a certain segment of the uh, country's economic output is devoted towards the social safety net. And they're not so they're not diametrically opposite systems. They are varied approaches to mixed economies, And I think that they reflect a different set of priorities. So you know, when we look at um at the Scandinavian countries, well, they pay a little bit more taxes, they definitely do. But they get so much more back for it. You know, I, I think this is one of the things that really stands out. You know, I pay a lot of taxes, and I'm happy that my, you know, my roads are well maintained, and I, um, I will eventually get a social security payment, and you know, all these things that we take for granted. My, if if my place catches on fire, they'll be here to help put it out. But in the Scandinavian countries, they really get an enormous amount of really obvious benefits for the for the tax dollars let me let me uh ask about a couple more of these We have Head Start for
0: kids from low-income families who meet the eligibility standards. But in in Denmark, everybody gets free preschool starting at six months if they
3: want. Very Uh, high-quality preschool. They can't be charged more than a quarter of their income. And people at the lower end of the income ladder, they don't pay a a penny. And think about how that that helps. We talk a lot about work-life balance. Imagine how much easier it is for people to, you know, raise a family and uh, work a job when you know that you could drop off your kid to an extremely high quality preschool system and not even worry about it. In, in Head Start, we have that covers a tiny fraction of the population in terms of full full-time Head Start programs. Of course they have very good public schools, they have free college
0: and vacation. Danes get paid vacation.
3: How much Paid vacation do Danes get? Well, so uh, all Danes get at least five weeks of paid vacation. Certain union members get a sixth, and then they throw in this other kind of random week around the holidays. So most Danes get about seven weeks of paid vacation. And one of the things that I think you need to look at in 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 the bigger picture is that when you account for um, the cost of living, the average Dane, the average American, their incomes are eh, pretty similar. But we work a lot more hours than they do. And if you look at the the amount of vacation they get, the amount of hours per week they, they work, they, they have a lot less stress than we do. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated is that there is a lot of stress living in a capitalist society – um, there's risk, there's inherent risk. This is something that I think conservatives really don't appreciate. They have this idea that there's people who are worthy of benefits and people who are unworthy of benefits. But whoever you are, you can walk out tomorrow and you know, a, a piano can fall on your head or whatever. And you know, we take on most of those risks or much of those risks ourselves as individuals in this country. And in the Scandinavian countries, that risk is socialized. It's spread out among the, the, the population. So if you walk out and you get hit by a piano and you have kids in school, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna get unemployment. You're gonna have uh, healthcare that you pay very little out of pocket for. your 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 risk is reduced as an individual. It's a lot less stressful living in those countries. Ivanka Trump has been
0: advocating parental leave, I think it's four or six weeks. I see that in Denmark, they have a full year of paid parental leave that the parents can divide uh, between them. And of course, they have a health care system of the kind we only dream about here. Uh, We've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to listen to a clip of what you actually did on the animated video. It's not the usual uh, Nation magazine angry pronouncements and and alarms about how rotten everything is in society. Let's listen to Joshua Holland narrating the animated video about why Danes are happier than Americans.
3: So you get the picture. Emma will have lived her life under the crushing burden of democratic socialism. That combination of state-funded education, healthcare, parental leave, and plenty of other benefits has made the citizens of Denmark the second happiest people in the world. And Americans, we're number
0: 15. I got to say, it makes me happy just to listen to that. How did you decide to do it in this in this form?
3: Well, you know, as, as you know, because I've been on your show before, I have yes. a, a terrible disease, which is that I get wonky very easily. So <laughs> I wanted to make this something that was really accessible. And th- this was really our... Our goal with this is that we didn't want to write a paper about, you know, oh look at look at how much social benefits they get and how much social costs are privatized in the United States. Blah blah blah. We wanted it to be something that, you know, you could watch the cute video and and see the the animation. The animation, by the way, is I think hilarious. I yeah. love the animation, and um and come away with a sense of the differences that that doesn't require like a PhD to understand. <laughs>
0: Joshua Holland, watch his wonderful video, Why Danes Are Happier Than Americans, at the Nation.com. Josh, thanks especially for this unwonky uh, effort, and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday. Now at thenation.com/slash-edge-of-sports. Start making sense, the Nation Podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer, Annie Shields is our engagement editor, Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.